Welcome to the Andrew Young School Podcast, where each month we interview a member of the Andrew Young School community who embodies the school's charge to think ahead and innovate in the fields of criminal justice, economics, public management and policy, social work, and urban studies. In this episode, we'll speak to David Myman, director of the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Research Group. David Myman received his PhD in sociology from The Ohio State University in 2009. Prior to joining Georgia State, he held a professor position in the University of Maryland. Dr. Myman, a criminologist, researches theories of human behaviors, cyber-enabled and cyber-dependent crimes, and experimental research methods. He joined AYS to found the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Research Group, where he and his team seek to produce empirical evidence, provide systematic reviews of existing empirical research, and provide tools for preventing the development and progression of cyber-dependent crimes. In this episode, we'll speak to Dr. Myman about the history of the EBCS Research Group, newly published findings from their research into the sale of illegal commodities on darknet marketplaces, and other little-known pieces of cybersecurity info that will keep the sharks at bay while you're surfing the web. All right, so I'm here with Dr. David Myman from the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Research Group. Uh, Dr. Myman, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you so much for having me. First things first, how would you explain cybersecurity as a field to our listeners who maybe don't know the exact definition? So um, I think that most of our listeners consume this uh, podcast um, through their smartphone, computers, um, uh, laptops, uh, tablets, right? These are all uh, hosts um, that essentially are connected to the server that uh, we decided to use uh, in order to upload this podcast, right? So essentially what happened is that our listener, your listeners, uh, are using their hosts, their computing devices to access the server you used in order to upload this uh, video um, or, or this podcast, right? What facilitate this communication uh, and what facilitate uh, the fact that these guys can actually, your listener can go on the server is, is the internet. The internet technology that is supported by routers, by switches, by uh, fiber optics that essentially allows information to travel from your listener devices to our server come up with a request for this information, listen to me talking about cybersecurity, and then our server send back the information uh, to um, uh, your listener, uh, your listeners over the internet. The practice of cybersecurity is essentially the, pra- the practice of protecting the, your listeners' computing devices, our servers, um, as well as the routers and switches and the fiber optics that are used to support and facilitate this this, this cyberspace uh, as we know it. And in the field of cybersecurity, you have several key actors that uh, support the entire field. You have the practitioners, you have the uh, CISO, Chief Information Security Officers, and their teams who are responsible of protecting the organization any organization, right, from experiencing different types of cyber crimes. They're also responsible for protecting you as a user to disclose information that the organization uh, does not want you to disclose. Then you have scholars like myself, right, who study 
different cybersecurity-related uh, questions and issues, being it relevant to human or technology. Um, and then you have uh, many, many companies, right, uh, that are trying to sell you all these products that will products and, and policies, right, uh, that will make you safer in cyberspace. So you know all those companies who build antiviruses and intrusion detection system, intrusion protection systems. Um, you know th- those are very important um, uh, actors in in uh, the cybersecurity field. So that, in a nutshell, what cybersecurity is all about. The past year has seen a lot of discussion of cybersecurity-related topics in the popular press, things about data privacy, things about hacking. How seriously should we all be taking the cybersecurity issues that your group is studying, or how serious do you think these issues are? Well, different people, different organization has different ideas with respect to what is serious uh, in their mind. Some people believe that um, cyberbullying or becoming the victim of, 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 of bullying is more serious than your information being taken, your, your, your financial information, your credit card information being taken and used by criminals to make purchases. Um, so it's, it's really important important to, to, to understand that. Now, uh, our group studied different types of crimes, uh, different types of online crimes, independent of what we believe or other people think is their level of seriousness. So, you know, our group focuses on hacking incidents, for instance. We're trying to understand how hackers behave during the progression of a, of a hack. Our group also tries to understand what makes hackers dick. You know, who are the hackers? Where do they come from? Can we prevent them from launching attacks? How we can prevent them from launching attacks? Once they launch an attack, can we mitigate the attack by nudging the hackers away from generating a lot of damage, right? So that, that, is, that is one type of crime uh, which some people may perceive as serious uh, that, that our group studies. We also explore and study online fraud. Online fraud is a huge issue experienced by um, individual as well as uh, large organizations. And, you know, the, the practice of online fraud and, you know, what we know about uh, the, the online uh, scams that, uh, that are out there, you know, there's just too much for me to actually give example. But, you know, uh, both large organizations and individuals experience um, online frauds. So our group focuses effort in understanding the fraudsters, our group focuses on trying to understand and, and produce a list of red flags, um, you know, with respect to trying to identify fraudsters. So that's another type of, of online crime that uh, that we focus and, and uh, try to get some uh, attention to. Cyberbullying is an issue that we're getting more and more into uh, because of the need we identify here in, in Georgia. I don't know if you know that, but uh, unfortunately, there's really no one agency that, uh, you know, allocate resources and, and actually study cyberbullying here in Georgia, even though we know that cyberbullying is, is an issue here. And I'm, I'm not, this is not necessarily means that cyberbullying is, is more an issue here in Georgia than other places around the country or, in the, or around the globe. But, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that cyberbullying is an issue here and not too many people are actually studying it, you know, try, trying to uh, improve or, or reduce those cyberbullying rates, right? Among, among our, our kids. And um, because of that, uh, our group decided to uh, focus attention on that. We're talking to several school districts uh, right now in order to really try and make some you know, difference there, right, with respect to reducing cyberbullying rates among school students. Finally, 
online darknet markets uh, is also a very uh, high and, and important topic that, that we focus on. Uh, I'm not sure whether your listeners are aware of, but uh, darknet markets are very, very active, very vibrant. And uh, on those markets, you can find different types of illegal commodities, drugs, guns, uh, ransomware, uh, that people actually buy and sell. So our group spent a lot of time understanding those markets, um, uh, scraping information from those markets, talking to vendors, talking to customers, purchasing things in order to really understand you know, those, those markets and come up with a way to disrupt them. So one of the distinctions that I hear you making is this term cybercrime and online crime. And I think when a lot of people think about cybersecurity, they think about data breaches and they think about you know, financial institutions, but they don't think about things like cyberbullying or even necessarily darknet markets. Can you maybe explain what constitutes a cybercrime or an online crime for our listeners? So cybercrime is a very broad um, umbrella concept that we use you know, to describe online crime. I don't like using cybercrime in the context of interviews or in the context of uh, scientific research because of exactly what you just uh, said. I mean, I don't know what you know people have in mind uh, when 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 they talk about cybercrime. It could be hacking, but it also could be cyberbullying, right? So it's it, the equivalent uh, will be talking about crime, right? We know that crime, the concept crime, you know, gather underneath it both violent crime and property crime. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to talk about crime in general, right? And so criminology just thought a lot about that and came up with uh, this typology to differentiate between crimes, online crimes, I'm sorry, or, or cyber crimes that could exist in the absence of the internet and computers. And, you know, when you think about those types of crime, you can definitely uh, think about bullying and fraud and identity theft. You don't really need internet technology. You don't really need computers in order to engage in this illegal behavior. Yes, computers facilitate that, support that, make these crimes easier to launch, but you don't, you, you don't really need a computer in order to bully someone. On the other hand, you have computer-focused or cyber-dependent crimes, which are classified or defined as crimes that could not exist in the absence of computer technology or internet technology. And in, underneath, underneath that sort of uh, concept, you can think about crimes like uh, hacking, uh, DDoS attacks, uh, malicious software. These are all crimes that people engage in and lounge and that could not exist in the absence of computer technology. And along with those distinctions comes this concept of the cybercrime ecosystem, which I know is something that kind of originates with your group. Can you give us an overview of what makes up this ecosystem? So when we think about the cybercrime ecosystem, we essentially think about four actors, four key actors, and the interaction between them. Uh, those four actors are the offenders, enablers, targets, and guardians. Um, those four actors engage with each other on clearnet and darknet environment and facilitate the cybercrime ecosystem that, that we discuss you know, in, in several papers as well as um, um, you know, on our website. Uh, the offenders are essentially the bad guys, uh, those online perpetrators who are trying to infiltrate our systems, who are trying to steal our information using different technology, different tools, using social engineering techniques. Um, you know, the individual who actually, you know, trying to get... And you have the enablers. Uh, the enablers are essentially those individuals who support criminals, in the, the online criminals in, in their operations. And so the enablers can support this, uh, you know, criminal endeavor by uh, facilitating markets for the bad guys to sell their 
commodity. The enabler can support the operation by writing malicious software, all those, all those worms and viruses. Someone needs to write the, the, those uh, programs. Usually it's the enablers and not the offenders who do that. So, you know, we have the enablers, you have the offenders. Then, you know, the third important player is the target, right? The human being who are using the internet, who are using computer technology on a daily basis to read the news, send email, watch Netflix, and that are essentially targeted by the online criminal. Um, And then finally, you have the guardians. Uh, When we think about the guardians, we think about either law enforcement agencies who are trying to solve different types of uh, cyber crimes, as well as the uh, chief information security officers and their teams who are trying to protect large organization as well as small organization from getting hit by uh, the bad guys. This is what we believe the cybercrime ecosystem is. Cybercrime ecosystem is composed out of these four actors I just mentioned and the interaction between them over both clear net and dark net environments. And I think the important distinction there is that this ecosystem is made up of people. It's not necessarily devices. Because it seems like a lot of times when we talk about cybersecurity, people get really focused on the technology and not on the fact that there are human criminals that are perpetrating these acts and they have motivations for doing that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I 100% agree. I think that you know the cybercrime e- ecosystem is you know facilitated uh, and supported by those devices, but you have human using those devices, right? So you have the offender using computing technology. You have the enablers facilitating the offender's efforts using computer technology. You have us, the targets, right, who are using in computing technology uh, in our daily in our daily routine, and then the law enforcement as well as the IT managers who are using uh, computing technology to protect us. Looking at the computing technology only, in my opinion, is is a huge mistake. It's only answering half of the question when we're trying to protect our infrastructure. We need to make sure that we focus attention on the human as well and the cybercrime ecosystem uh, in general. So it's not only the human; it's also the interaction between those actors we just discussed. And that understanding, that human-focused kind of approach, was part of the building of your research group, correct? Our group is a, is a very interdisciplinary research group. What differentiates our group from other groups across the nation is that social scientists drive our car, while computer scientists drive many other cars. I was, you know, b- b- before I came here to Georgia State, I was part of other research centers in other universities who, in uh, and those centers were led by computer scientists. I see other research centers around the country who, uh, which are led by computer scientists. The focus on those centers is more on the technology, less on the human. We kind of flipped it uh, all around, and, and so the social scientists are, are driving this car, right? And we ask questions that are cybersecurity questions, but are more relevant to the humans in this ecosystem. And the other important piece of your group that kind of differentiates you is this idea of being evidence-based. Can you explain what that methodology looks like and how it sets you apart? Our group is all about collecting evidence from the field uh, using wide range of rigorous scientific research designs. Uh, We use experiments, field experiments. We use uh, survey methodology in order to collect data from the field. But, you know, the emphasis that we bring is in collecting evidence from the field, running experiments in the field in order to produce evidence that then could support decision makers with respect to adopting a specific policy or specific tool. You know, I'm not saying that other groups do not 
produce evidence. You know, all scientists uh, try to produce evidence. The question is, how do you produce the, this evidence? How close you keep things to the field, to reality? In my mind, there's a huge difference between running an experiment in the lab versus running an experiment in the wild. Um, you know, people are people, and when you put people in a sterile setup, uh, they will behave differently, right? Uh, in the lab setup, you will behave very differently when you know someone observing you than when you behave in the field, right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to collect evidence from the field, you know, talking to real criminals, observing real attacks, trying to deflect and nudge real attacks from happening and collect evidence that will guide decision makers, uh, chief information security officers, as well as scientists in their decision uh, making when they're trying to think whether to adopt a specific tool or a policy. And so talking about getting out into the field, uh, your group has been around for about a year, but you've published some pretty impressive research in that time. And one of the pieces that really has kind of gained a lot of momentum is your work around TLS certificates. So before we get into that research and kind of the exciting findings that you've had there, can you explain what a TLS certificate is for those who may not be aware? Sure. So TLS certificate has two functions, right? The first function is to identify or, or, or to ensure um, the server you're visiting as a, as a host, we talked about it at the beginning of the podcast, is really owned by uh, the company you're trying to access, right? So um, if, if I want to go on my bank account, right, online, then, you know, I want to I wanna make sure that uh, I go on my actual bank server and not you know, some criminals who set up a random server, right? So TLS certificate will ensure that by uh, providing you with a green padlock at the, at the left of the URL, as well as um, the name of the company that you're trying to uh, access, the, the, the name of the company who owns the server, right? So that's the first functionality of TLS certificates. The second functionality is to encrypt the traffic that goes from the server to the client, so from you know your bank server to your smartphone, right? And by encrypting the traffic, you know the the, the customer you know may may feel safer, right? That his information, his or her information, uh, is not being stolen by any other uh, any, any other malicious actor. This is what TLS certificates are all about, and and um, and essentially, when you think about TLS certificates and and uh, the companies who issue those TLS certificates, uh, those companies, you know, you you pay money in order to get those TLS certificates from certificate authorities. And the certificate authorities have different types of certificates that they sell, right? So they have the DV certificates, they have the OV certificates, and then they have the EV certificates. The DV certificates is a domain certificate and essentially just encrypt the traffic from your server as, as, a, you know, as, as, as a business owner to your client uh, computer. The OV certificate will essentially validate the organization exists. So the certificate authority will ensure that the organization exists. The EV certificate is the extended validation certificate. It requires you, as someone who is purchasing the certificate, to go through a very rigid uh, validation process. So you have to submit documentation that your company really exists, that you've been around for at least six months. Uh, you need to prove that your server is actually yours, and uh, you know you need to be able to take a, a phone call from the from the certificate authorities when they call you in order to really discuss the EV certificate. And I mean, and the EV certificate should not be available 
available, right, to anyone to purchase unless they're a certificate authority. They're, the, the, the certificate authorities are the only valid organizations who sell those certificates. What our group found in the beginning of 2019 was that uh, th- there are a couple of actors in the darknet, a couple of vendors on the darknet, who offer EB certificate for sale. And so you know, we reported that, you know, we got some attention uh, for this really interesting finding. Uh, essentially, we, we find that several vendors out there put together shop and offer EV certificate as either a crimeware service or, you know, as a service as of itself. So, you know, we found these guys selling EV certificate as part of their uh, willingness to design a website for you, right? So if you want to defraud people, you want to put together like a fake bank or whatever, you can contact someone on the dark net, give them uh, the bank name and then that individual put together a really nice website for you and he they promised to get you the EV certificate on that and then you have those uh, vendors who promise to give you the EV certificate for any website and company that you put together so that's what we reported in 2019 uh, recently in our second report we actually um, report the way the vendors are actually getting those certificates because when we first started working on this um, project you know we thought that if, if we purchase those certificates essentially what we will get uh, are fake certificates we did not get fake certificates we got real certificates from uh, existing high-end certificate authorities. And uh, what we've discovered is essentially the way the vendors obtain those certificates. And the way the uh, vendors obtain those certificates, the vendors over the, over the darknet, is by uh, defrauding the certificate authorities. What the vendors in the darknet essentially do is they open fake companies for you as, as a customer who you know who need the EV certificate. All you need to provide is a name. They will open a real company for you. Then they will uh, get official governmental documents from you know uh, official governmental websites. They will submit those documents to the certificate authorities. The certificate authorities uh, will do their due diligence and validate that the organization essentially exists. And then they will provide the EV certificate to uh, the vendor. So the EV certificate we were able to purchase our real certificate provided by certificate authorities who were defrauded by those vendors. So this is pretty shocking news, right? Because as you said, when the first report came out, my impression reading it, and I know other folks was, well, clearly these aren't real. These aren't real certificates. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think is going to be the fallout now that we discovered these are real certificates and these are issued by actual authorities. Is there going to be follow-up research? What's kind of next for this study? So several things need to happen, right? The first thing that needs to happen is that the certificate authorities need to change their validation process, right? Obviously, uh, this organized crime group, several groups that we identify uh, have compromised the process. So, you know, they can get you the EV certificates for non-existent organizations. So what needs to be happening is that the certificate authorities need to revise the process. Um, They they need to constantly test that once they vouch for someone and, and, and they say that this organization actually exists, the organization really exists. So that's the first thing that needs to happen. I think that one of the important things that came out of this uh, report also is the fact that uh, the FBI and Congress um, discuss the findings in order to really change legislation. Some legislation needs to happen around this because we saw, uh, we witnessed those criminals 
using governmental resources to defraud the certificate authorities. So, you know, some thinking needs to uh, be done around the legislation we have, right? Around different governmental entities producing governmental uh, or official governmental documents for the existence of, of non-existent companies, right? Uh, it needs to take place here in the United States, but also in other places uh, around the globe where we found you can get those certificates for. And then, of course, one of the important things that need to happen in terms of, of uh, follow-up, you know, we need to figure out whether other commodities that people say they can get to you on the darknet, you know, really exist, are, are real or not. Because as, as you had mentioned, you have all kind of people on the darknet saying they sell all kind of stuff. Is it really real? Should we really be worried about those threats, those, those individuals selling other individuals, those individuals selling murder services, I mean, those individuals selling organs? Is it real or not, right? So some more research uh, need to be done um, in the context of those areas. And I think that what we proved that what we proved in this specific uh, uh, research is that some of these guys actually can deliver on their work. So with all of that in mind, I think the thing that is probably running through some of our listeners' minds is I can't believe that they're actually doing this right now, that these are academic researchers who are on the dark net and you know, interfacing with actual criminals who are selling actually illegal products. For those who kind of are having that thought flash through their mind right now, can you explain what a day is like in your research group? Like over there in your offices, what's going on right now as we record this? So a day on the dark net, right? That's that's essentially what we're trying to get at, right? So so um, so if if you want to know what's happening, you know, in, in the context of the darknet project, I mean, it's it's it sounds very sort of sexy, right? And and uh, you know, so you get to talk to criminals, and you know, it's it's really not that, right? I mean, uh, because we do not allow our students to talk to criminals. Essentially, an average day for one of our graduate students who sit on the darknet will be something like going to the containment unit, which is essentially a room here in Georgia State that is connected to the evidence-based cybersecurity research group independent network, turning on the computer, going on the darknet, and start downloading a list of advertisements, a list of commodities that are offered for sale um, over one out of 60 darknet markets that we sit in. This is essentially what the students do. Uh, they do it using scrapers, so the process is, is is automated, but it's still very tedious. Students also develop parsers, because once all the information is downloaded to our servers, we need to parse it in a way that makes sense and will allow us to run some interesting analysis uh, around. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of time invested in that. So uh, I, I know it sounds really glorious, you know, the fact that we're sitting on the darknet and, and talking to criminals. The students do not do that. The people who do that, let, let's just, you know, keep them on the, on the dark, you, you know, for the purpose of, you know, their safety, their family's safety. But, you know, uh, you can't be, I mean, the students definitely do not do that. So this is an average day uh, of our students. You know, for me, an average day is, is all about meeting with students, meeting with potential funders, meeting with companies, me- meeting with, you know, our advisory board, meeting with uh, professors, trying to bring more money to the group, carving more cutting edge research, really in order to push both cybercrime research, um, you know, to the next level, um, as well as well as you know, make our findings know to the to the ecosystem. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this work is, like you said, it can be very tedious. But anybody who visits your group, myself included, it feels like you have such a 
warm environment and such a team atmosphere. Like everybody over there is just so excited to be doing this work. And it is exciting work, even if the actual actions of, you know, writing a parser are pretty tedious. How do you keep that mentality going and keep people from getting burnt out on these kind of admittedly tedious tasks? So first of all, we love the students, right? I mean, and and you treat them with with uh, real sincere care and 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 warm and uh, you know you, you make yourself available as a resource for them right once once that is established you know i think that you know the students simply respond to you with uh, genuine care as well i mean it's the end of the day it's a group effort it's not my operation it's you know georgia state operation and and we whole we all have vested interest uh, in this initiative to succeed right so you know the students yeah they get paid Paid for their for their work uh, and their contribution, but they really do care. You know, we have our Friday meetings where we discuss many many projects that we're involved in, and uh, you know, we assign project. The students uh, report their progress on different projects. Everybody knows that they need to deliver, so there's no question there. But you know, uh, it's it's really. It's very informal sort of vibe, um, and and I think that I, this is this is the type of vibe that I, I grew up in, and this is the type of, of of vibe and environment that I'm trying to facilitate to the students. And I think that once you have this kind of environment, everybody cares. Every, everyone begins to care because you know the group success is everyone's success. Every individual within this group success, and that's why I think so far, touch wood, um, you know we're doing okay. Hopefully, it will continue. So as we continue into 2020, and it seems like cybersecurity and its kind of various related issues of privacy and data security and all of this is ever more in the popular press, what do you wish you could explain to the average computer user? What is something that you wish we all knew about our own cybersecurity or about the ecosystem as a whole. I think that the most important thing that uh, I would I, I'm trying to emphasize and explain to my kids on a daily basis is the fact that even if you think you're protected, even if you think your identity is protected, even if you think that nobody is looking at what you're doing right on on your smartphone or your laptop or your computer, there's there's a probability someone is doing that, and and that someone doesn't have to be a malicious actor. It doesn't have to be a hacker. It could be a hacker. I can't really give you the probabilities that a hacker sits on, you know, your computer, your camera right now. I, I, I don't know uh, because there's no really evidence, no research that talks about that. And that's one of the things that we're trying to change. So it doesn't have to be that malicious actor only. It could be, you know, the major corporations, right, that produce those devices, that put together those applications, those applications that we use on a daily basis. The most important thing that I would like your listener to take out of this conversation is that every time you're online, someone may be watching, someone may be uh, looking at your information. And it doesn't have to be a malicious actor. It could be, you know, th- this company you bought the smartphone uh, from, or it could be this app developer who developed this really cool application to make you feel better before you go to sleep, right? Those companies collect a lot of data on you, on your, on your, on your uh, smartphone usage, your, your computing usage. And, you know, this information then is being used by other companies to push, you know, commodities your way. So if there's one thing I would love for everyone uh, to know is that you need to, you know, be cautious about the way you're using the internet. Don't treat your 
smartphone as the product uh, because at the end of the day, it could be that you are the product for those big companies. Well, Dr. Maiman, if people want to learn more about you or the work that your group is doing, what's the best way to figure out about that? So uh, ebcs.gsu.edu, that's our websites. Uh, we also have a Twitter account uh, as well as LinkedIn account. So, you know, people by all means should go and, and visit those uh, platforms. Well, thank you, Dr. Maiman, for sitting down with us. Thank you so much for having me. For more information about the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Research Group, visit ebcs.gsu.edu or follow them on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Andrew Young School podcast is produced by Taylor Olmsted with production assistance from Jennifer Giratano. Our executive producer is Ivani Raval. We are a production of Georgia State University's Andrew Young School of Policy Studies located in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. To learn more about the Andrew Young School, visit us online at aysps.gsu.edu or follow us on social media at aysps.gsu. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to leave a review for us in your podcast app of choice. And we'll be back next month interviewing another policy thought leader from the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University.